Good morning, my friend. Hope you're doing well. It is time for another self-brain surgery Saturday. I had the opportunity a couple of weeks ago now to sit down and have a conversation with one of my favorite writers, Russ Ramsey, is going to be with us on the show. Russ has written two books. They're different. He's actually written four books or several books, but uh, the two I want to talk about today really very different books. The first book that he wrote that, that got my attention was called Struck, and it's a, basically a reflection on death and dying and disability and, and illness and all of that. The, the subtitle is One Christian's Reflections on Encountering Death. Russ was a healthy pastor, you know, doing everything right, living his life, doing things the right way, and he was afflicted with a heart condition that required emergency, uh, like life or death, legitimate surgery and so his his life was called into into question he wasn't sure he was going to make it he had to have emergency heart valve surgery and he was sick for a while and had an infection and all these things and, and in the book just kind of covers uh, his side of the suffering doctor patient uh, illness death disability uh, worry fear you know all those things and it's such a beautiful book and but that's not really the the primary focus of the conversation today i hope to have another conversation with russ about struck but i highly recommend that you read this it kind of reminds me of some of the things that i grapple with in my book i've seen the interview but from the patient side of the equation rather than the doctor side and so I, we had a good conversation about those kinds of things but the reason i first reached out to russ was because i ran across this book this is the first time i ever heard of him i was on instagram and i saw a post from andrew peterson who is an, a christian recording artist and writer that i love i've read uh, all of his books and i've read i've listened to his music for years and, and so i follow him on instagram and when i saw this post about this incredible beautiful cover of a book called Rembrandt is in the wind. It just got my attention. I said, what in the world is Rembrandt is in the wind? And the subtitle is learning to love art through the eyes of faith. So Rembrandt is in the wind, learning to love art through the eyes of faith. And I don't think we actually ever got around in the conversation to talking about the title, but the reason it's called Rembrandt is in the wind is because of an art heist and that painting, Rembrandt's famous storm on the Sea of Galilee was stolen and never recovered. So the actual original Rembrandt is in the wind. Some, somebody stole it and nobody knows where it is. And so that's where the title of the book came from. But but it made me think when I first started reading his book, I was so captivated by how we don't take enough time to, to review and think and ponder and just sit with art and beautiful things anymore. We're always looking at a screen and scrolling and letting somebody else show us content that, that kind of drives our decision making and our dopamine release and all these things in which our life right now, for many of us, is so digital and so focused on on created content that we're forgetting that we live in this incredible, beautiful, amazing, created, designed world. This world that reflects the light of our creator. And Jesus says, I am the light and in him there is no darkness. And so Russ has a chapter in this book that's about borrowed light, about this idea that we all can make things, but none of us really create things because everything that we do has been created by the creator and also Everything that we do is built on the back of someone else who's already done some work. So if you're an artist, you, you, you don't manufacture your paint and your brushes and your, and your canvas and, and all those things. You, you borrow that light 
from someone else. That, that previous work allows you to do the things that you do. And that really resonated with me because as a surgeon, I'm trained by someone who was trained by someone who was trained by someone. And I use equipment and technology that was invented by someone that was designed by someone and engineered by someone. And everything I do to bring relief of pain and removal of brain tumors and extension of life and saving people from trauma is all built on the back of work that someone else has done and, and this light that I try to deliver to the world in the terms of hope. Even in writing, like all of the things that I do in writing and podcasting are the the result of something that someone else poured into me that, you know, Lisa made me believe in myself and Philip Yancey opened the door into publishing for me and, and even great loss and pain and losing our son and going to war and having PTSD and going through all the divorce and all the things that I've done in my past have all built this foundation that's producing now me handing you a book like my upcoming book, Hope is the First Dose. All of that is borrowed light. So that metaphor really resonated with me and I wanted to talk to Russ. So I reached out. He was gracious enough to come onto the show. We had an incredible conversation. And it just made me kind of think about our daughter, Kimberlyn, for example. She sees, she's a fine artist, has a degree in art from Auburn University, and she can see something like, like birds. She's really drawn to birds. And she can see a bird, two birds together, and she can see a story. And she can see pain and beauty and love and magic, and, and she can paint that somehow and show you a picture of two birds you know, coming together, and she can make you feel an emotion out of this light that she's put together on the canvas of paint that she didn't make and a canvas that she didn't stretch and brushes that she didn't handcraft herself. But she can do that with this gift that God put inside her that we could see when she was a little girl. Lisa looked at her and said, you are an artist. Like You've got it in you. You need to go and do something with this gift that you've got. And so I just wanted to sit down with Russ Ramsey and have this wide-ranging conversation about art and faith and beauty and pondering and, and sitting and forming yourself through the eyes and through the lens of other people's work and, and through borrowed light. It was a beautiful conversation. And I just invite you to sit down and listen to this brilliant pastor who's faced great calamity and adversity in his own life, but also has learned to stop for a moment and see beauty and see hope and see faith through the eyes and through the lens and through the craft and work of prior beautiful, great, talented artists. And it's a wonderful conversation that's inspiring. Um, and I think we'll have him on again. He's got another book coming out next year, and I would love to have a whole conversation about the themes in his first book, Struck. I'll put links in the show note for you. And we will get after it in just a moment. But I wanted to introduce you to a new friend today, Russ Ramsey, author and pastor, and just a great, amazing, fun guy to talk to. And I hope you enjoy it. Don't forget, you can't change your life until you change your mind, my friend. And as Lisa always reminds us, the good news is that you can start today. Hey, are you ready to change your life? If the answer is yes, there's only one rule. You have to change your mind first. And my friend, there's a place where the neuroscience of how your mind works smashes together with faith and everything starts to make sense. That place is called self-brain surgery. You can learn it and it will help you become healthier, feel better and be happier. And the good news is you can start today. 
Thanks, Lisa. Hey, so glad to have you listening today. I'm Dr. Lee Warren, and I live in Nebraska in the United States of America with my incredible wife, Lisa, my father-in-law, Tata, and the super pups, Harvey and Lewis. I'm a neurosurgeon and an author, and I'm here to help you harness neuroscience, the power of your brain, faith, the power of your spirit, and good old common sense to help you lead a healthier, better, happier life. Listen, friend, you can't change your life until you change your mind, and I'm here to help you learn the art of self-brain surgery to get it done if you like the show. Please subscribe so you never miss an episode and tell your friends about it. If you tell two or three friends this podcast was helpful to you, imagine how much good we can all do around the world together. I'm Dr. Lee Warren, and I'm here to help you change your mind so you can change your life. Let's get after it. Hey, friend, we're back, and I'm so excited to introduce a new friend to you today. I've been reading him for a while now. I got Russ Ramsey here with me. Hey, Russ. Hey, it's good to be with you. I'm glad I'm glad we figured it out. Yeah, me too. I'm so glad to have you with uh, us today. And um, I've been telling my listeners for a while now about Rembrandt is in the wind. And um, we bought the Rabbit Room edition for several of our family members for Christmas. And just a beautiful book. And you did a great job. So looking forward to a really good conversation with you about that today. Um, Pastor, uh, before we get started, would you mind praying for us? I'd be glad to. Yeah. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to to connect, uh, to use technology to talk to each other across many states, uh, and, um, to form a friendship and, and, uh, talk about what it means to be people living in this world that you have made that is full of beauty and brokenness at the same time. And we ask that you would just give us a, uh, a, a helpful and fruitful conversation, uh, around those things. And it's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. So, Russ, you're you're not just a pastor. You're also an art and art lover and artist. And, and tell us a little bit about how you um, how you came to write about art and faith. I think there's there's probably a little backstory there that we can't get just from reading the book. So let's, let's hear about that. Yeah, yeah. So I grew up in a small farming community in Indiana. Um, so small town kid. Uh, you know, art museums were were not in nearby and and but I and had art classes where the art teachers uh, to whom I dedicated this book, um, my middle school and high school art teachers um, really worked to instill in us a, a lifelong appreciation of art and and one of the one of my my high school teacher, one of the bits of advice she gave us is she said, if you want to have a lifelong relationship with the arts, just find an artist that you connect with uh, and then just pay attention to them for the rest of your life and they will um, introduce you to their friends, their mentors, their inspirations. Um, you'll walk into the room where Van Gogh is and, and you'll meet Monet and Pizarro and, um, you know, others, and you'll read the plaques on the wall and they'll introduce you to Delacroix and Rembrandt and Caravaggio. And, and before long, you'll, you'll have this body of knowledge uh, about art just by paying attention to the ones that you connected with. And so for me, that was, that was Van Gogh first um, and then Rembrandt soon after. And, um, and it's, and, and it's been just kind of a lifelong, I, I, I never studied it in college. I don't, I wasn't an art major, but, but, um, but I've always paid attention to art. I've always been uh, attracted to it, uh, to paintings and, and sculpture and, and just fascinated by, how these things come to be in the world, you know, how, how is it that, yeah. that we make these kinds of things is, is just an endlessly fascinating curiosity for me. And so, so, uh, yeah, so I'm a person, I'm, I'm, I'm almost 50 now. And um, so for most of my life, I've been just paying attention uh, and, and 
wanting to look and um, and it's led me to so many to to have to coming upon so many ways that that art and beauty intersect with faith and the human experience so how does um at the start of your book you talk about these these universal values that humans appreciate you know goodness truth beauty work and community like what does that have to do with art and faith and where do those things collide yeah, you know, the, the, the column, the, uh, the transcendentals, truth, beauty, and goodness, the, these things that are unique to human beings, that they're, they're things that we pursue that no other yeah. creature on earth pursues. Um, and, uh, and they're part of what it means to be made in the image of God. You know, if we're, if we're made in the image of this creator who made everything, uh, and made things to work, uh, and interact with other things in certain ways, um, then, then part of the, the, the experience of being who we're truly meant to be, um, God's image bearers involves engaging with beauty, uh, engaging with truth, goodness, um, and beauty in particular is, is, is so vital, you know, especially in the West, we can be very pragmatic, yeah. um, when it comes to beauty. We can, we can think about, um, you know, the, the goal of reading the Bible, for example, is to learn the lessons from it. Yeah. Um, but most of it's a narrative. Most of it's a story being told. It's not, it's not serving up on a platter lessons. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a tangle of a narrative, you know, and, yeah. and we're people of stories. And, and, uh, so part of the way that we, we live as image bearers of God is seeking to understand him as he is. And, and he's, he is, uh, you know what we read about him in scripture is he's glorious he's beautiful he's he's radiant um yeah. and so when we're engaging with beauty part of what we're doing is we're engaging with a with a quality that we know to be god's a quality of his and so it's important for us to engage with beauty here in this life if we want to say that we want to know who god is yeah. uh, because he you know to 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 say you want to know god but to have no no time uh, or desire to engage with beauty is to miss um, such a big part of what we know to be true about who he is. That's right. I mean, it is important too to to slow down a little bit because uh, God communicates to us through all kinds of nonverbal things and the beauty of the sunrise. Yeah. And we never take time to notice. We're always looking down at our phones and spending too much time to notice what God's showing us around uh, the world around us. I love it. You, you start the book, you, you tell the, the first stories about Van Gogh and, and you tell about a self-portrait. Um, I love the little conversation that you had there with us about um, self-portraits and, and uh, when you first drew one as a child, like, what do you, what do you, mm -hmm. what do we tend to do when we do self-portraits? That's a great lesson. There. Yeah. I mean, you know, we, we tend to try to improve upon what we see. Right. Yeah. And so I, I tried to give myself just better features uh, better hair, better, you know, uh, more striking eyes. And, and you end up in the end, you end up with a picture of somebody else, right? It's not right. you. And, and, and it's, and it's apparent to everybody that it's not you, that only the truth will do, um, in the work of painting a self portrait. And, and, uh, you know, one of the ones that I'm actually have hanging in my office here, um, is a print of, uh, Van Gogh's self portrait with bandaged ear. Yep. Um, that he painted, you know, in in one of the most shameful and low episodes of his entire life, uh, which was a short life that was filled with a lot of low moments. Um, but it's it's one of those ubiquitous things that people know about Van Gogh. You, if if you know about him, 
you, you probably know that he painted Starry Night. You probably know that he cut off his ear. And and yeah. those are the two, you know, the two, the kind of the, the starter kit uh, for Van Gogh facts. Uh, and a lot of fun. People make a lot of fun out of the fact that he cut off his ear. Uh, and, um, but it's a tragedy, but he painted these, this painting of, of his bandage showing. And it's such a poignant thing to me as a, as a pastor and as a person um, to think he's, he's willing to let his wounded side be seen. Yeah. Uh, he could have painted anything he wanted. He could have painted uh, himself and painted the ear whole. Uh, but he chose to capture it. And the irony of it now is that it is um, a painting of invaluable worth yeah. uh, uh, as it, as it captures him in his lowest moment uh, ever. And so I keep it in front of me to think, you know, to remind me as a, as a person and as a, as a pastor that I need to be willing to let people see my own frailty and my own uh, wounds uh, and my own shame uh, rather than carry myself as somebody who is has all the answers uh, to everything, and you can come to me and I will just dispense wisdom. It's, no, I, I want to be yeah. a fellow sufferer and a fellow struggler through through this world, um, and uh, that seems to be the place where we where we do most of our learning and growing anyway is in the suffering. That's right. You wrote this is a beautiful paragraph. You wrote, "This is how God sees His people. We are fully exposed in our shortcomings, yet we are of unimaginable value to Him. This is how we should see others, and how we should be willing to be seen by others, broken and of incalculable worth." He looks down. He looks down on me from my office wall here at home and and, and at the church. I have I have the same painting hanging up there as well, right by That's my true. desk. It's amazing. It's great. It's great writing and, and a very important lesson for all of us. I mean, just so for background, so that the people listening to us today, Russ, um, come to me because I write about some similar to you, I write about brokenness and pain and how to find hope again after we lost our son um, in 2013 is when I started doing all this stuff. And um, we realized that we heal more completely when we do so in community, right? When we, when we are willing to share our wounds and show what hurts and, and help somebody else that's a little fresher for them. Um, and so I, I found a lot of, um, things that resonated with me in Van Gogh's story that you shared with us about he, he, he didn't hide his pain. In fact, he, some of his greatest work was painted while he was in an insane asylum for a year, right? Yeah. Yeah. Lots of it. Lots of familiar irises, you know, which is a, very famous Van Gogh um, is the garden at the asylum. Yeah. Well, that's a powerful yeah, lesson. He, yeah. You wrote your first book um, was about illness and frailty and, and all of that. Let's talk about that for a moment. Something happened to you. So you're a pastor and you got a young family and you're healthy, the picture of health and, and something happens that kind of changed the way you looked at your own life. Like what happened? Yeah. I, um, I developed a, a, a bacterial infection in my heart. Um, we don't know how, uh, but but I had a, a my mitral valve. I had a heart murmur. My mitral valve was was shaped funny, and some bacteria got in there and and just grew. And 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 a, they had to do open heart surgery to repair uh, the valve. And and it was a very sudden thing um, that that happened. I just I got I got sick and and you know like fever. Kind of felt like I had the flu, yeah. and it just wouldn't go away. And uh, um, yeah, and and so it it you know so one day I'm going about my my day not feeling well and go to the doctor and they do blood work. And the next day they call me and say, we want you to go to the emergency room. Uh, you, you, there's a problem here. And it changed the, 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 the direction of my, it 
the direction of my life uh, moving forward. It was one of those uh, moments we we all have them um, that that are kind of watershed moments. They're flashpoints, and and uh, that one for me was was walking into that emergency room and then really not emerging um, into anything that would look like a, a normal life for four months. Now that wasn't all in the hospital, but, but the things that had to happen. Um, and that's what the book struck is about. It's, it's, it's a 24 month in real time record of walking through an affliction that was on the level where I had to get my house in order in case things didn't go well. And one of the ways that I, one of the spiritual disciplines for me, um, and also mental disciplines for me was to write, uh, was to write yeah. my way through it and um, to try to pay attention to things that were happening to me that might have some crossover, you know, for, for other people who are suffering. And, and as I started to hear from people that originally they were blog posts or or, or emails to the congregation and yeah. people would say, man, I really resonated with that chapter on loneliness. Only I felt it when I was going through infertility or uh, a, a divorce or the loss yeah. of a job. And I, and, and I started to key in on, Oh, Oh, I'm, I'm walking through. And what are some of the things, the ways that that faith gets tested through the affliction. And so that's what the book is about. Do you feel like Rembrandt would exist if you hadn't written struck? Like, do you, do you feel like you'd, you became a writer of books because of that experience. Technically, it's it's my third book. Um, the, the 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 I the, I wrote a book for Advent and a book for Lent that that came out before this one, but have since then been republished with Intervarsity Press. Ah, okay. um, and so they had they had earlier versions, but but no, I think Struck is is a pretty important book in laying the foundation for the kind of storytelling. Um, that Rembrandt is in the wind is about. So it's struck as much more of a memoir, but it's, but it's a story and it's told in a storyteller's voice and it's, and, uh, and kind of figuring out how to playing around with, with story and figuring out how to, how to tell a good one um, became a a great fascination for me. Now you did a great job. I love. It. I missed the. I missed the timing. I saw those other books that I thought they were after Struck, so I missed that. Anyway, I'm. I'm really glad. Um, yeah, they followed. They were released. They were released. Yeah, IVP released them after after Struck, but one was on Crossway, and then the other one was on Rabbit Room Press. Um, right before, but, but yeah. cool. Well, I can't recommend Struck and Rembrandt is in the Wind highly enough. Um, um, before we get too much farther, there's there's one story in Rembrandt that I want to talk about because I think it's going to take a little time. And I think it's an important um, lesson that you taught us. Um, you talked about Vermeer, um, the, the the master painter Vermeer. And how when you first encounter a Vermeer painting, it's, it's something's off with it a little bit and you don't quite get what it is until you spend some time with it. But tell us a little bit about him and his, his sort of life and story. And then I want to get into this concept of borrowed light a little bit, because I think it's, it's a really important concept. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, one of my tricks to engage with art and just kind of have it around is I go to used bookstores and I go to the art section because usually you can find coffee table books. Yeah. Um, at a great price and coffee table books are a great way to, to actually harvest prints to frame. Um, if you don't mind cutting the book up, uh, and if the book is $3, uh, and you can get two copies of it, then, you know, go for it. So I was at a used bookstore and, um, there was a book called the complete works of Vermeer. And it was a very small book because there's only 35 or so Vermeers in the world. 
And so I'm flipping through it because I had, I had as a, kind of a callback to something I said earlier, one of the things that I learned, I've learned about Van Gogh is Van Gogh revered Vermeer. And I was unfamiliar. And so I saw this book and I pulled it down and I started flipping through. And the first few paintings are, you know, nothing to see here. They're landscapes and whatever. Right. And then, uh, then it, then it's a picture of, of people and furniture in a room. And then you turn the page and it's another picture of p- different people in different, in, in a room. And, and, and soon I, I, I was having this feeling of something's off with, but I don't know what it is. And then I realized every painting is of the same room from the same vantage point. Yeah. And that got me just curious. And they, and they were so elaborate and detailed and precise that I could not understand how it could be, how he could achieve what he did technically. Like, like just the, the precision and the, the patterns that he painted and the detail that he was able to capture. Um, and so it got me spinning. Like, why, why is he always painting the same room? Uh, and even the furniture is the same and it's the themes are the same. Um, the lights coming in from the same window. He's from the same perspective every time. And then somebody I was commenting, I, I, I told somebody about this and they said, have you ever seen a documentary called Tim's Vermeer? And I yeah. said, I hadn't. And it was produced by um, Penn Gillette from Penn and Teller. Um, and he had a friend, he has a friend named Tim who uh, was trying to figure out how Vermeer did what he did. And he, um, and he, uh, he's, he's, he said he used an optical device. He he set up a, a, a station where he had a kind of a series of lenses and mirrors and he was kind of painting by number in, in a way um, using these devices to capture exactly what, what he was seeing. And, so Tim's Vermeer is all about trying to figure out what device did he use uh, and to recreate it. And then in, in the end to actually paint a Vermeer himself. Um, and part of the trick was he was not a painter. Um, wow. He had never painted before. And so he, and, and, you know, I won't spoil the documentary, but he, but he figures out uh, it's very, very probable that what he figured out was what, what Vermeer used. Um, the setup that Vermeer would have used to to accomplish his paintings. And so that got me thinking, um, what do you do with information like that? It does, yeah. does that, does that mean that Vermeer was cheating? Was he, should we look at his work and say, oh, well, it's not that impressive because he, he had a trick that he used, or is it that much more impressive because Vermeer figured something out? that nobody else was doing in quite the same right. way and was so mysterious about the work that he left, you know, like he was a very private person and, and, and there's not a lot about him that's, that's known. And so, so he's, he's kind of a mystery and these paintings and there's so few of them uh, that they're just, it, it's, it's a, it was a delightful mystery to fall into for sure. Well, it's, it's fascinating, and, and to me, it was it was even more fascinating because um, this is the part you don't know. So that the the guy who happened to live in the same small town that Vermeer did, named Leeuwenhoek, uh, von Leeuwenhoek, um, turns out to be the guy that sort of invented microscopy, right? So um, he yep. he he's the guy that is the reason that science nerds look 
at things through microscopes. He's the one that sort of perfected that that early art of of microscopy. And that was resonating to me because as a scientist and as a neurosurgeon, um, I use a microscope every day in my operating room. Right? So and that's a direct descendant of Leeuwenhoek's work. And so that got me thinking about this idea of of standing on other people's shoulders, right? So so Vermeer yeah was in a town and he knew a guy who made lenses and made microscopes and, and he had this idea, Hey, let's, let's broadcast this onto the canvas and let me learn how, let me paint this stuff in greater detail. It's fascinating. And so I thought, well, that's, that's interesting because everything I do in the operating room is built on the same guy's back. Like every time I do an operation, it's because I can see and magnify and light things up. And you talked about this concept of borrowing light. Um, and just expand on that a little bit because I think it's, it's an important concept for us. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, so the, the idea for me of, of borrowed light is that, is that we, we take the work and the insights of others. And we borrow it and apply it uh, to better understand what it is that we're doing, you know, so we're, we're borrowing the light of others. And, and it's funny, like if you, if you go down a, if you start to just unpack how much of this happens in, in our regular lives, um, the things that we benefit from the work and the efforts and the study and the discipline of a craft uh, that other people have poured themselves into there's just no end. And it's part of the way that the Lord made human beings to be communities and, and, um, but also generationally the ways that we, you know, that, that, that here you have, um, Lewenhock making these, these, uh, you know, the father of microbiology making these lenses and these microscopes yeah. and it's serving the art and then, and then coming down through and becoming just such an integral part of medicine. Um, and I think about Vermeer in his in his studio, and I think he's there and he's got these lenses, but he's also got, you know, a, a chair that somebody made. Uh, he's got brushes that somebody made uh, with the bristles that were that were held with the uh, fennels, you know, and he, and he's got his mortise and pestle, and he's got all this canvas that somebody wove, and right. and all these different things that are that are the stretcher boards, all this that is coming together that other people have done in order for him to even be able to sit down and pick up a brush and paint. And, um, you know, if you go to an art museum and you're looking at a Vermeer, you're, you're looking at it in a place that was built by people where there was an architect and there were engineers and there were problem solvers and there were stonemasons and there were carpenters and there were electricians and all of these other things. This is part of the way, yeah. I believe that God made us to have to need others, um, and 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 that's a kindness, you know. That yeah. that it. I mean, it's one of the first things that we read in Scripture about people is that it is not good for us to be alone, um, and that's about so much more than God giving Eve to Adam, yep. right? It's about God giving one person other people. Uh, and, um, and so Vermeer is this interesting, he, he, his name is on the work, but the work was made possible through the efforts of countless other people. And isn't that the case for, for all of us in any good endeavor we're a part of? 
That's right. You said even even the blind composer composes on a piano that was made in the light. Like it's a great line. Yeah. And you said this. So there's a little little paragraph I want to read. There's only one who can make something from nothing. God. The rest of us subcreate. We work with what can be found lying around on the floor of creation and repurposed from the belly of the earth and the salvage heaps of industry. In this sense, human beings are as a species found object sculptures. So I thought that was that was just a great um in, inspiring thing for me to think about that you know we we take ownership of our own work and sometimes we take pride in it um and we forget that we're standing on other people's shoulders and we're standing on the fact that God has given us the the clay that we couldn't make and he's given us all the the substrate that we use to do all the work that he's called us to that kind of reminded me a little bit of yeah. Philippians 4:9 when when you said that earlier about um how we all depend on each other. And Paul said, um, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or even seen in me, put it into practice. Like that's the kind of life we're supposed to live, right? Like living our lives in front of others so they can, they can come alongside and emulate. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's inescapable. Um, so, you know, we, we all uh, take things that are given to us and handed down from others um, right. and implement them into our lives. And so it, it, it raises the really good question for us of, are, are we thoughtful about what it is that we're using and what, what are we, what light are we borrowing, you know, um, it, or, or are we absent-minded in the ways that we move through the world and, and aren't really paying attention to, um, the voices that we're taking in that are really forming us, that are forming how we think and how we relate, um, you know, that there's, there's a, there's a great importance to be careful, um, yeah. you know, um, because, because we are, we are, uh, this is a really crass way to say it, but we are producing a product right. um, with our lives. And, and, um, and so we can, we can be deliberate and we can be intentional and thoughtful um, and that doesn't mean we need to be scrutinizing everything and having no fun. It just means that we need to be, it, it's good for us to be very mindful of, of the, the things we take in, the things that we use, the things that we reflect back, um, yeah. to others, um, and to, and to be, uh, wise along those lines. It's a great thing to say right now as we're in Lent and a lot of us who are, um, keeping Lent, um, the, the purpose of it or a focus of it is to, to be more mindful and to kind of strip away distracting things and, and help us focus more clearly on things that are, are bigger and, and deeper and more important. And um, I think it's a good, a good thing. Our listeners have been hearing me say that a lot in the last few days, like strip stuff away, get stuff out of your way and be more intentional about what you're thinking about and what you're doing. What are you working on now? Yeah, what's, the, think, what's the next project for Russ Ramsey? Well, uh, I'm happy to say that uh, Zondervan is ask for another book about art. Uh, so I'm, Excellent. I'm writing another 10 stories. Um, and, uh, I'm, I'm about, that'll come out in, in 2024. Um, I'm, I'm probably two thirds of the way done writing, which means I've, I've chosen most of the stories at this point. Um, and it's been really, really fun, uh, to, to get into some of these new artists and revisit some old artists, but tell different stories about them. Like in this book, I will actually tell uh, the story of Vincent cutting off his ear. Um, I don't touch it. I don't touch that story much in Rembrandt yeah. is in the wind, but, but in this next book, I'm going to actually have a chapter just about that, um, about that episode, because it's, it's, um, 
you know, it, it, one of the things that I, I've done with with Rembrandt is in the wind and with the next book um, is tr- tried to find sort of, OK, w- what is an overarching theme of right. the story that I'm telling that that uh, that sort of intersects with with, you know, kind of everyday life. And for for the episode of Vincent cutting off his ear, it, it's the question of what if what if you made your way through the world being known by the worst thing about you? Mm-hmm. Um, what if you were known by your greatest shortcoming? Uh, you have, you know, the, the, uh, the woman caught in adultery, Simon, the leper, um, these people in scripture that are named according to their afflictions and are named yeah. according to their, uh, their failings. Um, that, that, uh, you know, the, the ubiquity of knowing that Vincent cut off his ear, uh, and the, and the jokes people will often make about that, uh, to me yeah. is, is a part of what I want to do is I just want to raise the seriousness and say, let's be careful. Um, <laughs> let's, let's, yeah. let's extend some dignity here, um, to, to people who, who, because, because we, we all could and some of us may end up being primarily known for our worst the worst things about us. Uh, and if there is, if there is no mercy and no compassion, then there's no hope. Um, but if there is That's mercy right. and compassion, then we can be known. Uh, then our failings can be known and our shortcomings can be known and we can still be, um, loved and, and, um, and kept, uh, in this world and not, and not discarded. And so that's going to be a fun one. Um, and then I also have a chapter on, uh, Thomas Kincaid in, in this book, uh, which I have some painter friends of mine who said, you have to write about Thomas Kincaid. And I kind of laughed because I, you know, I, I, Thomas Kincaid is, is not to me, uh, a fine artist. Uh, he's, he's a, yeah. he, you know, he produces a product, uh, or he produced a product and they said, no, no, it, it wouldn't be a story about his art. It would be a story about the phenomenon of the intersection of, um, kind of the Christian industrial complex and yeah. this painter, uh, who amassed a $3 billion enterprise, um, and then, died of a Valium and alcohol overdose. Oh. Uh, and, and the tragedy of, of the story of, of how that happened. Um, because part of how that happened is we did that, you know, you know like we, we, we bought, we bought the, the world that he was painting and it was a world that he couldn't live in. Um, it was wow. a world without a fall. And, uh, so that was a, that was a really, really fascinating, um, chapter to to dig into and there's others in there as well that i'm really excited about and some that oh. i'm still writing writing and and uh and i've got two two chapters that i don't really know what they're going to be about so um <laughs> if you or any of your listeners want to make a recommendation um i've got two chapters that are tbd <laughs> wow that's great do you have a working title so far the working title right now is owning mona lisa oh cool and it's a it's, it'll be about um, Mona Lisa was stolen from the Louvre in 1911. Um, and so it kind of explores uh, this, this desire that we have to, um, to possess beauty uh, yeah. rather than to behold. Uh, uh, so, so say you got away with stealing the Mona Lisa. Um, are you better? 
for it? Or has your life just gotten immensely more complicated? Um, And then, and it's also kind of the story about um, it it gets into (laughs) one of the things that fascinates me about the Mona Lisa is I don't get it. Um, But one of my suspicions is I don't think anybody else gets it either. Um, I think that people (laughs) look at the Mona Lisa and say, why her? Why is this the painting that has the bulletproof case in its own room in the Louvre? And, and why is this the one? Um, and when I started researching the theft of the Mona Lisa from the Louvre in 1911, it is the story of how she became Mona Lisa. Right. Um, she was a pop cult, she was a pop culture phenomenon. Uh, it was the, it was the perfect timing of a, you know, a, a, a relative, I mean, it wasn't a famous painting before then. It was on a wall with 20 other paintings. It just happened to be low enough on the wall and small enough that it could be picked off the wall. Um, news sources were becoming global. Uh, and so, and, and true crime was becoming sort of a sensational uh, kind of storytelling. And, and uh, so the theft of, of a Da Vinci from the Louvre um became a, a great fascination all around the world. Um, and uh, and so she became a pop culture phenomenon is what she really is. Wow. Um, she's not the best painting in the world. She's right. not even the best Da Vinci painting, right. but, but she is, she represents something. And uh, the, it's, so that was a really, really fun story. Um, Picasso was actually arrested for, as a potential thief. Uh, he was questioned. <laughs> about did you steal the Mona Lisa? And so it gets into that, like why, why was Picasso brought in and questioned <laughs> about that fascinating, fascinating stuff. This will and, be and it's, it's one of those where the, Oh man. Well, yeah. Where the, the, the truth is stranger than fiction, you know, that's right. <laughs> especially when it comes to that. So, so that's what I'm working on now. And I, I, I'm, I'm, it's, it's pretty energizing and fun to get into those, get into those tales. That's so great. And congratulations. I mean, it's not, it's not every day that the publisher wants a second volume of something that we've written. So that's, that's a big accomplishment for you. Yeah. 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 I'm, I'm, I'm really happy. It seems like, it seems like the book is finding, um, finding people and doing for folks what I really hoped it would. And what I hoped it would do, uh, would be to, um, to remove some of the barriers to entry that people feel when it comes to engaging with art, you know, feeling like I have to understand art history or I have to understand symbolism or, or all these different things in order to appreciate art. No, you don't. You you can, you can stand in front of a painting and say, I like this. And that's as valid a form of art criticism as anything. Um, and, you know, and so really wanting to, to, to help people, not feel intimidated, but really see art as a gateway into great stories um, is, is something that I would, I would, you know, is one of the reasons why I write this is, is to, is to say that the things that you know about and see the stories behind them are not only fascinating, uh, but they, they relate, uh, they relate to the human experience that we all know and, and walk through. And so I'm, I'm harvesting those stories as best as I can and telling them as um, with, with as much care uh, as I, as I can, because I, I want people to love art and I don't want, and I want people to be unafraid of art. And that's, that's why I'm writing. I love it. Well, you're doing a great job. I guess as a, as a final thing, I promised you 30, 45 minutes, we're right up against it. So I respect your time, but um, we have, 
a lot of listeners today, Russ, who are, they come to this podcast because they're hurting. They've gone through something hard. Uh, they're going through something hard. Um, my new book is about the, the massive things that we encounter, you know, your, your disability, your, your heart attack, your loss of a child, these big things. And they're trying to find hope. And so how can we engage faith and art? If you're going to leave us with a word here, how, how can you put these two things together in a way that can help us find hope? I think the way I would answer that with relation to art is one of the things that I've found as I've researched all these different artists, Van Gogh, Rembrandt, Michelangelo, is that the greatest works of art that we know in the world almost invariably are produced by people whose lives are marked with suffering. Yeah. And and the reason that their art transcends, uh, the reason that it's 500 years old and hanging on museum walls around the world, the reason why um, Van Gogh is so moving to people uh, is because he was a sufferer. Yeah. Uh, he suffered deeply. And it's, and, and so when, when artists who have suffered, let that suffering into the, the work that they make, um, what comes through is a, a kind of an honesty um about the bra- the pain and the brokenness of this world and yet it's framed in the context of something beautiful wow. and art uh, does a powerful job of marrying the the beauty of redemption and healing and grace and forgiveness with the brokenness and the hurt uh that require those things and so um so when you're looking at art you're you're often looking at somebody's struggle represented visually uh and 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 the the beauty is is almost invariably tied to the suffering and i think when we suffer in this life uh, even as i think about my own uh when i had to have the the open heart surgery and walk through that season. Um, I didn't think of it as, you know, there are life lessons here that the Lord wants to teach me. Um, but pastorally, one of the best things that I've gained from that experience and continue to gain from that experience is I have suffered. Uh, and so as I walk alongside other people who are suffering, um, I'm not, it's not that I'm just dispensing pithy bits of wisdom to help them keep their chin up. It's that the comfort that I'm able to bring to them in their suffering is that I have suffered too. Uh, and so when, when we're walking through affliction and suffering and all the uncertainty that goes with it, uh, it that's where we do most of our spiritual growth. That's, wh- that's where we do most of our maturing. That's where we do most of our, that's where we gain most of our perspective um, on this life and the life to come. And, um, and so it's, it's never wasted. Not, not a, not a bit of our pain is wasted. Amen. Well, that was beautiful. That was a perfect example of why I wanted to have you on the show today. I, I, yeah, I never fully know when I, when I feel I'm reading something, I feel a little nudge and I'm like, I need to get this person on the, on the show. That's why, um, th- there's a, there's a big story about beauty and pain and, and suffering and not hiding before our God and other people. And, 
And and you brought it out beautifully. I appreciate your work and your time with us here today, Russ. Um, congratulations on a beautiful book, a couple of beautiful books and the work that you've got left to do. And uh, we pray for you and your family and your congregation. Thanks for being with us today. Uh, thanks for having me. This was, this was great. I, I really appreciate the conversation. Well, wasn't that a great talk? I, I've just so enjoyed these Friday conversations. I've, of course, lately been posting them on Saturdays. We're doing these self-brain surgery Saturday episodes. And, and really, self-brain surgery Saturday is all about different ways that you can change the way that you think about things in order to feel better and, and become healthier and be happier in your life, right? To, to be able to find hope and be more resilient when things are hard. And I think taking some time to just ponder and think. I mean, God says, be still and know that I am God. And we're not being still enough in our world. At least I'm not. I don't know about you. Maybe you've got it all dialed in. But but that was a beautiful 40-something minute conversation. And I want you to go and get Russ's book, Struck, if you want to read about adversity and, and how to find hope and faith in hard times. You know, as, as a medical kind of conversation about when you're challenged by something that affects your health and your view of your own future and your and your concern about your, your family and all those things. Struck is a beautiful book. I wish there was an audio book. I would love to hear him read it himself, but, but it's a, a print book and it's beautiful. Go get Struck by Russ Ramsey. I'll put links in the show notes. And I encourage you highly, highly, highly to read Rembrandt is in the Wind. It was one of my favorite books that I read in 2022. And it's just an incredible, uh, beautiful book and the coffee table book that's available from rabbit room press which is andrew peterson's publishing company has really kind of enhanced versions of the photographs in line with the text and it's just beautiful rembrandt is in the wind i'll put a link in the show notes for you now since you've made it this far since you put 48 minutes of your life into this episode i want to hear i want you to hear it from me first here Sometime in the next two weeks or so, we're going to hit our one millionth episode download of the Dr. Lee Warren podcast. I can't even believe it. This little project that I started in the basement studio of our house in Auburn in 2014, right? So nine years ago now, we were at one million downloads, and I'm so grateful. Lisa and I are so thrilled to be having you listen and to tune in and to connect and read the newsletter and and to hear from you from folks all over the world, and we're incredibly grateful. So I'm not exactly sure the the way stats work on podcasts. We won't get like a a notification, hey, you hit one million. It's not going to happen like that, but but it's going to happen sometime in the next couple of weeks. We're over 960,000, and the way downloads are happening, it's going to be within 14 days or so we'll cross that one millionth download and i'm just i just wanted to tell you that i think it's so cool that you've joined me on this journey and we're incredibly grateful so just thank you for all the support and all the love and i hope that it's been helpful to you and i'm really grateful for you my friend god bless you don't forget to start today Hey, thanks for listening. Please subscribe to the show so you automatically get every episode. And if you like the show, you'll love my weekly letter. Check out my writing at drleewarren.substack.com, drleewarren.substack.com. Get the free newsletter every week for my best prescriptions for becoming healthier, feeling better, and being happier through the power of faith and neuroscience smashing together via self-brain surgery, drleewarren.substack.com. And if you need prayer, go to the prayer wall at wleewarrenmd.com slash prayer. The theme music for the show is Make Us One by Tommy Walker, graciously provided for free by the great folks over at tommywalkerministries.org. Check it out and consider supporting them, tommywalkerministries.org. Remember, you can't change your life until you change your mind. And the good news is you can start today. I'm Dr. Lee Warren. I'll talk to you soon. God bless you, friend. Have a great day.